Hello, and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Another hour of geeky sort of stuff. Not so much news this week, because obviously, in the week between Christmas and New Year, it's time to look back a little bit. We will be looking forward also, but mostly back. At the year that's gone, and what a what a year it's been. So we'll stick with our usual stack segments, and we'll start by looking back at the year in space. And although we will be looking back at the year in space, the first thing we have to report is just a little item of news, which is they've finally done it. The James Webb Space Telescope launched around about lunchtime UK time on Christmas Day. That's the 25th of December for those not keeping up. The launch of the Ariane 5 rocket carrying the instrument was pretty flawless and obviously in French because it was being launched by the European Space Agency. The official NASA video of that event, along with about an hour of explanation as to what the James Webb Space Telescope is all about, can be seen in the show notes, which are actually there this week. Apologies for their non-appearance over the last couple of weeks. That's down to technical issues and total lack of time. Don't be a retailer in the run-up to Christmas. You have no time for anything. Anyway, just because the launch is finally done does not mean that everything is over with JWST. As I record this segment on Wednesday the 29th of December, the telescope is heading away from Earth at something approaching half a mile a second, en route to its final orbital position, which it should reach around the end of January 2022. As it does that, it is starting to deploy various bits and pieces of equipment that it will need to do its job. Again, as I record this, what's currently happening is the heat shield is being deployed. Uh, This is quite a complicated process involving sort of motors and servos and such that haven't actually been used for about five years. So fingers crossed for that, because if the heat shield doesn't work, nothing works. That should be sorted by the beginning of next week, at which point they're going to start having a go at deploying the secondary mirror and then the primary mirror. Now, those operations are going to take pretty much until the end of January. It won't be until then that we'll know whether the instrument will be operational or not. Remember, if it's not, there is nothing we can do and the whole thing's been wasted. This mission is a huge risk. And you might say, well, why are we doing it then? If it's got the potential to be a complete waste of time, effort and money, why has NASA invested so much into this mission? And it's a really good question. And the answer is because we need to do the science. This isn't just any old telescope. You couldn't do the observations that James Webb will do from Earth. You couldn't even do it from Earth orbit, which is where Hubble is. You have to be far out in space, very cold, to the point that even though this instrument is going to be in in orbit around the sun, not around the Earth, but in orbit around the sun, and space is very cold, it still requires cryogenic cooling for some of its components. That's how cold it needs to be. You couldn't do that on Earth. But the payback for that is James Webb will be able to see things that we have never seen before. It will allow us to explore corners of the universe that we have never seen before. It will allow us to look back in time. Because you've got to remember, the further away things are that you're looking at, the further ago they were, because light travels at a constant speed. The James Webb Space Telescope has the capability to let us see to the very edge of the observable universe. And it will allow us to learn things that we could not learn any other way. And in the end, that's what humans do. We are defined by our curiosity, by our need to explore. And James Webb Space Telescope, like Hubble before it, allows us to explore visually things that we could never explore physically. So, fingers crossed, I will keep you updated as the mission progresses, but you can also follow the mission at the NASA website. There is a link to the appropriate page in the show notes. So, that's James Webb. What else has been happening in space this year? Well, let's start with something that on the face of it seems silly, but actually 
has some serious point to it. Um, and that is Barbie in space. Back in October, I don't think I reported on this at the time. Back in October, uh, a special edition astronaut Barbie modelled on the real-life Italian astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti. I apologies if I got that last name wrong. Um, flew aboard a an, a European Space Agency plane on a zero-gravity fl- training flight. And on the face of it, whoop-de-doo, they put a toy in an aeroplane. But much, much, much more important than that. First of all, this is a Barbie that's modelled on an actual woman that actually exists. Now, if you have seen traditional Barbies, they are modelled on some kind of weird, anatomically bizarre creature that doesn't have a huge amount to do with women at all. So, first of all, a realistically proportioned Barbie now exists. Also, based on a real person. And that person is 44. So this Barbie is not a young thing. It's based on a woman who has aged. And a woman who has made her career in science. And is now Europe's only female active astronaut. And what is the point? Well, the point is very simple. We need to get more girls interested in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. We just do. And if you want to attract people, you have to meet them where they are. And a lot of young girls are liking to play with dolls. Yes, that's a stereotype. Yes, there are some boys who like dolls. Yes, there are some girls who do not. But in the society in which we live, one of the ways you can reach young girls is through dolls, particularly Barbies. Barbies are popular. So make one and show the girls who like traditionally girly things that science and engineering and technology and maths could be for them. And before anybody uses the W word at me, this isn't about being woke. This isn't about being feminist. Although, I mean, if you choose to view it as either of those things, you do you. This is actually about finding the talent. Women are underrepresented in the fields of STEM, and it doesn't make any sense that they're underrepresented because they're no good at it. It seems far more likely that they're underrepresented because they're not doing the subjects at school that they need to go into STEM-type degrees and STEM-type careers, or they're not even thinking that a career in any kind of STEM activity is something that is open to them. As a result, an awful lot of women who could be perhaps genius engineers, amazing technicians, brilliant mathematicians, maybe there's a lot of natural aptitude that's just being wasted. And hey, if astronaut Barbie gets one girl to think, hmm, I can science, then brilliant. And yes, since you ask, I'd quite like to see stay-at-home dad action man as well, but that's outside the remit of this show. But of course, it wasn't all floating toys in space this year. There were some serious hard science missions too. Perhaps the most spectacular uh, was the landing back in February of NASA's Perseverance rover. This is the biggest rover that's been sent so far, and without question, the most ambitious. It used a similar um, jetpack and parachute combination to the landing system used by its sister rover, Curiosity, to make a soft landing on Mars back on February the 21st, I think it was. And honestly, it's been a remarkable mission so far. The main thrust of this mission is to look for signs that there may have been life on Mars in previous times. Um, Six samples taken so far, thousands of images, along with a bucket load of data about the geology, the weather, and even the sounds of Mars, because they finally put a microphone on one of these things. Uh, That's something that the Planetary Society has been pushing for for a long time. So now we know what Mars sounds like. The mission is also uh, experimenting with various technologies that may pave the way to putting humans on the planet at some point in the probably still quite far future. But for me, 
All of that isn't what makes Perseverance exciting as a Mars mission. Oh, what makes Perseverance such a draw for me is that Perseverance is not alone. Perseverance has a little friend called Ingenuity. And what Ingenuity is, is a genuine experiment that everybody thought wouldn't work. But it does. Ingenuity is a tiny little helicopter type arrangement. It's not a helicopter, it's a rotorcraft. But literally nobody needs me to be as technical as that. Tiny little flying machine that can fly around and scout ahead of Perseverance so that folks back at Mission Control could potentially, in the future, check out objects that might be of interest just to double check before they go to all the trouble of sending Perseverance over there. Because, you know, Mars rovers are relatively slow and moving them across terrain is always a risk. So it makes sense to have a system whereby you can check stuff out in advance to make sure that risk is worth taking. More than that, Ingenuity is really a proof of concept because if we could explore Mars from the air, we could cover a heck of a lot more ground much more quickly than the rovers are ever going to do. There were questions about whether you could get a rotorcraft to fly in the Martian atmosphere, which is very thin compared to the atmosphere of Earth, but they've done it. It works. And you know me, I love an aircraft. So the success of Ingenuity has made me very happy indeed, and I'm very keen to see what the various space agencies do with this technology next. Because, yeah, this is a proof of concept, but it's proved the concept. We have made our first powered flight on another planet in an atmosphere that's 1% as dense as Earth's atmosphere. The possibilities now for planetary science are literally almost endless. Anything with even a slight atmosphere, we now know we can fly stuff in. That potentially could speed things up immensely, and we could learn a lot more. And that's just Mars. So much more has happened in space in 2021, and we may look at some more of it next week. But for now, I think it's probably time to move on. Because in spite of lockdowns and all of that stuff, quite a lot has happened in 2021 in fields other than space. So we should probably also have a quick look at what's been going on in... Science! Because the boffins have been busy this year. And of course, the big science story this year, as last year, has been the global pandemic. And that's been kind of a roller coaster this year. We've had vaccines, we've had more vaccines, and we've had variants. And we've had more variants. And we currently are dealing with another one. Now, I talked a little bit about this last week, so I'm not going to go into huge amounts of detail here, but there is actually some movement on Omicron since last week and some tentative good news. We do know that Omicron is much more transmissible than previous variants, and we know that the vaccine is less effective in terms of disease prevention. We also know that generally speaking, and it's dangerous to generalise here because for some people it's still very bad news, but generally speaking, if you are vaccinated and you contract the new Omicron variant, you will be less ill than you otherwise would have been, which is good. However, as I said last week, if you've got a smaller proportion of people needing hospital treatment after contracting COVID, but a significantly larger number of cases, you could still have just as many people needing hospital treatment. And that still is a problem. And don't worry, that isn't the good news. The good news is about T cells. As I understand it, your immune system is comprised of two things. You have antibodies, which is what the vaccine gives you, and you have T cells, which are cells within your body that attack viruses. If you've had the virus, or if you've had the vaccine for the virus, your T cells learn to recognise the virus as a threat and attack it. What we haven't known is how long your T cells will go on to remember the virus for. Well, research in South Africa suggests quite a long time, which means if you've been vaccinated or if you've had the virus, your level of immunity or and protection from severe disease may last longer than we thought. So that's a little bright cloud, isn't it? 
The scientific advice in avoiding being infected in the first place remains the same. Wear a face covering not to protect you, but to protect everybody else from you. If everybody does that, we can reduce transmission. Keep some distance when you're out in public. Don't be up in everybody's face, which, you know, is polite anyway. And maintain that hand hygiene. And of course, be vaccinated. If you can be vaccinated, be vaccinated. The key thing here is to keep the number of cases as low as possible. Because A, that means we don't overwhelm the hospitals and people can be treated for other stuff. And B, the fewer cases we have, the less likely we are to generate new variants. And that applies worldwide, which means we also need to get the vaccine rolled out to places it hasn't got to yet. But that is where the geeky science stops and the politics begins. And we're not a political show, so we're going to leave that thought just there. Because, although it's fair to say that Covid has dominated the science headlines this year, as last year, It's not been the only thing that's been going on. There has been some great science this year, such as the Chinese development of what they're calling a soft robot for exploring the deep seas. I really liked this story because if nothing else, it put me in mind of the movie The Abyss, which, if you recall, involved deep sea divers exploring an anomaly in the Mariana Trench and coming into contact with aliens. And the design of this robot put me in mind of those aliens. Because, you see, I mean, you'll know this, I'm not telling you anything new here, but the deeper into the sea that you go, the greater the pressure that the weight of the water above you puts upon you. And the traditional way to deal with this has been to make incredibly strong, uncrushable undersea vehicles. Whether they're crewed or uncrewed, it doesn't really matter. You need to make sure that your metal rigid tube thing is strong enough that the weight of the water can't crush it. And that has always been a limiting factor because there is a limit to how much pressure a vessel like that can take. It's a standard trope in movies about submarines that, you know, at some point in any movie about submarines, there's going to be a question about whether they've dived too deep and whether the hull will take the pressure. But that's also pretty much always been the human approach to engineering. If there's a force that could be a problem, you find a way to resist it. This new approach takes the opposite view and says, okay, we're going to get crushed. How do we deal with that? Now, it's not an approach that's going to work for vehicles that have crew because humans are going to remain pretty much not good at being crushed. But for autonomous or semi-autonomous vehicles, This is a really exciting way to go. It's working with nature, not against it, and it's learning from nature. The design is actually based on uh, a sunfish. It's got fins that flap to give propulsion, and it's got like a soft silicon body. And the electronics inside are are not centralised, so they're spread out through the whole thing, which means as the shape of the robot deforms, under pressure they can spread apart or crush together without being damaged and the whole thing therefore just works it's a brilliant brilliant design it carries lights it carries cameras and it could enable us to explore the very very deep ocean that we've never been to before and to see and learn things we couldn't have seen or learned any other way but let's not get carried away with the good news also in science this year was the realisation that cryptocurrency is going to destroy the planet. Don't even get me started on NFTs, which also use blockchain and which are also therefore part of this problem. But I'm referring specifically to a study that came out in March that looked at the carbon footprint of Bitcoin mining in China. Now, if you don't know about cryptocurrency, basically the biggest one out there is Bitcoin and you get Bitcoin either by buying them and... We're at the point where they're so expensive, you're probably not going to buy a Bitcoin, you're going to buy a portion of a Bitcoin, but that's another thing entirely. Or you, heavy air quotes, mine them in the way that you might mine gold or any other precious metal, except Bitcoin doesn't really exist. It's not a tangible thing. So in order to mine, again, heavy air quotes, a Bitcoin, you use a computer to crack an algorithm. And if you crack the algorithm first, solve the puzzle, if you like, you are rewarded with a Bitcoin. Bitcoin are currently very, very valuable. 
As I record this on the 30th of December 2021, a single Bitcoin is worth just under 35,000, that's 35,000 pounds sterling. That's a lot of money. And that means a lot of people are working very hard to get as many Bitcoin as they can, which means mining a Bitcoin isn't something you do on your laptop anymore. It might have been back in the early days, back when a Bitcoin was worth a couple of quid. But these days, it's big business. You, you are competing to solve these algorithms with a lot of other people. So you want as much computing power as you can get. The problem with that is computers use electricity. If you're running a Bitcoin mining operation, you may be running literally thousands of hard drives. There are Bitcoin mining operations in China and the USA, which are reopening actual coal-fired power plants in order to power their Bitcoin mining computing operation. Because of that, the carbon footprint of Bitcoin is massive. Uh, analysis um, by Guan Dabo at uh, Tsinghua University in Beijing calculates that Bitcoin mining in China, and this is just China, will peak in 2024. By that time, it will be releasing around 130 million metric tons of carbon into the atmosphere. If you think that sounds like a lot, it is. That actually exceeds the annual carbon emissions of, of many countries, including Italy and the Czech Republic. By 2024, Bitcoin mining in China, if it continues the way it's going, will require another big number coming up, 297 terawatt hours of energy. And that will be about five and a half percent of the carbon emissions for generating electricity in the whole of China. There's over a billion people in China. That's a lot of power that's basically being used to create a thing that isn't tangible and only exists because we think it does. I don't think that's a good idea myself. And that's before we look at the carbon footprint of the blockchain and the computers needed to maintain that. It's linked to a helpful New Scientist article in the show notes, simply because I find all of that completely unfathomable. What are we doing? But this isn't going to be the boring preachy part. There was other good stuff in science this year. A personal favourite being some archaeology and research that casts a new light on Neanderthals. Now, we like to think as Homo sapiens that we're a pretty big deal. We are the only species of human to survive to the present day. And we like to think that that's because we were better at evolution than everybody else. And we also like to think that we were cleverer than everybody else. And I quite like any kind of archaeological evidence that suggests this may not quite be the case. So some archaeology reported in July this year made me smile. Uh, it features some carved deer antlers made by Neanderthals 51,000 years ago. Think about that. 51,000 years ago. That's pretty much before us. So traits that we'd assumed were unique to modern humans, clearly not, must have been, they must have been present in our hominin cousins, the Neanderthals, and therefore perhaps other variations of early human too. Obviously, we don't know what these carvings mean necessarily. They may have been purely decorative. They may have been so, some way of keeping record or something like that. We simply can't know. But either way, these carved antlers, or fragments of antler at least, that were found in the Hertz Mountains in Germany are evidence either of Neanderthals doing art or Neanderthals doing science. It's got to be one or the other. The researchers who did the actual study seem to be leaning towards art. But they, they're kind of chevron carvings in the antlers, and it turns out that these giant deer that the antlers are from were pretty rare north of the Alps at the time these carvings were done. And they kind of think that strengthens the idea that 
there's some kind of symbolic meaning to these carvings. If that's the case, that's evidence for a conceptual imagination, which is something we didn't think anything other than humans had. So that's pretty profound. Again, it links to um, a Science Alert article in the show notes. I found this completely fascinating. And we're going to come back and have a look at some of the other fascinating stuff that happened in the world of science in 2021 in next week's show. But for now, once again, it's time to move on. Because there is so much other amazing geeky stuff to talk about, even allowing myself the luxury of a two-parter for the review of 2021, I'm probably not going to be able to talk about all the great geeky movies that came out this year. Obviously, almost nothing came out in 2020. So part of the, the reason for the just incredible volume of new stuff this year is that it had been put back from last year. So we had Marvel slipping into a new phase. Uh, we finally got to see Black Widow, which I kind of enjoyed, but it felt a bit hollow, if I'm honest. Um, I like the way it sets up Yelena, who is clearly going to be Natasha's replacement in the MCU. It was a decent enough plot. The action was good. But, uh, you know, a Scarlett Johansson-led Black Widow movie was five years too late before this movie got put back a year. And this isn't the movie we wanted. Or at least, it isn't the movie I wanted. I wanted a Black Widow movie where we could be optimistic about what might happen to Natasha. Because watching this movie after Endgame means you know how Natasha's story is going to end, and you know it doesn't end well. Spoilers for a movie you've all seen. So, you know, it's for me, it's at once a five-star and no-star review. I really enjoyed it. But at the same time, I was really cross with it. And... I'm struggling to reconcile the way I feel about this film, really. I think maybe I need to watch it a couple more times and get a better handle on exactly how I feel about it. It is now streaming on Disney+, Plus, so you can watch it for no additional charge if you happen to be a subscriber to that service. The same is true of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, a film I have watched about three quarters of. I didn't go and see it in the cinema, I confess... I couldn't really get excited about it, if I'm honest. And so I didn't watch it until it came to Disney+. Plus. I'd like to say it completely blew me away and now cannot wait for the inevitable sequel. But that wouldn't be true as evidenced by the fact that I haven't actually finished it yet. I think my problem with it is that it's good. It's okay. It's a decent Marvel movie. And do you know what? Being a decent Marvel movie means you're pretty good. If we're looking for comparative metrics, it's better than Thor The Dark World, which for me remains the weakest of the Marvel movies so far. But it's not much better for me than Thor The Dark World. The, the, the humour works much better, uh, the plot is more coherent, and the performances are better. And in that regard, a particular shout out to Aquafina as Katie, because she is phenomenal in this, both as the comedic relief, but also actually she's kind of the heart in this movie. And she just does a phenomenal job. So yeah, no, it's a decent film. But essentially, Shang-Chi has exactly the same problem that Marvel's Iron Fist had. Yes, it's a Marvel movie, just as Iron Fist was a Marvel show. And on that level, it works. But it's also a martial arts movie. And on that level, it fails utterly. I like martial arts movies. I'm a huge fan of Jackie Chan. I loved Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon back in the day. Grew up watching the old uh, Hong Kong monkey series based on the journey to the West. I love great fight choreography. And this was not great. If you're going to do this, if you're going to use characters like Shang-Chi and Danny Rand... You've got to get the fights right. It's got to look like proper Hong Kong martial arts. And for me, this didn't. And for that reason, Shang-Chi never going to work for me. I love that they tried, and they clearly did try. But for me, it just didn't come off. Now, for me, there are two contenders, really, for Geeky Movie of the Year, and one of them I haven't seen yet. So I'm going to briefly talk about that one first. But if you haven't seen Spider-Man No Way Home, please don't worry, there will be no spoilers 
in this section because I, as I said, have not yet had time to go and see it. But I own a comic shop inside a cinema. I've heard a lot about it. And this is only the second time in my experience of paying attention to superhero movies, which is my entire life, that I haven't heard or read or seen a single bad review of this movie. That never happens. Even when a movie is brilliant, somebody usually has a couple of nits to pick about it. Not with this one, though. And the only other time that's ever happened that I can recall is with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It seems now that most people who dig Spider-Man, at least, have either No Way Home or Spider-Verse as their top Spidey movie ever, and with the other one at number two. If you recall the episode that I spent with Hat and Liz talking about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, you will know how much I loved that movie. And so you can probably guess how keen I am to see No Way Home. But since I haven't seen it, I can't make it my geeky movie of the year. And that means that I'm going to utter a sentence that when I saw the original in 2016, I genuinely couldn't have conceived would ever come from my mouth. And that is that for me, the best geeky movie that I saw in 2021 was The Suicide Squad. Yeah, I know. What can I tell you? If you've seen the original, I'm sorry. I share that pain. I sat through it too and left the cinema thinking, what just happened? And then I thought about it and realised that what had happened was almost nothing. Now, I'm given to understand that a better cut of that movie exists. And, you know, it almost certainly does because I can't believe it could have been worse. There's a lot wrong with the original Suicide Squad. Uh, the total lack of plot, um, the incoherent way things happen, and the sheer number of shots of Margot Robbie's bum in hot pants. And seriously, if you can take a cisgendered, heterosexual, middle-aged man like me and make him bored of shots of Margot Robbie's bum in hot pants, you have truly failed as a filmmaker. And understand me, the problem here was not in Robbie's performance, which was the only bright light in a very dark place of a film. And on the rare occasions in the original Suicide Squad where she was given the opportunity and the scope to show her range, she really did. But the way she was filmed, the way she was framed, the way she was made up, the way she was costumed, all of that was just so misogynistic. It made me feel really uncomfortable. I didn't like it at all. With the sequel, I don't know whether... This is because Margot Robbie said, I, I want to take a bit of control over how I'm portrayed here. Whether James Gunn is just a less misogynistic director or what it was. But it was better. Robbie remains, I think for me, in The Suicide Squad, the best thing in the movie. Her performance is brilliant. But she's got a slightly softer look, a slightly more playful attitude. It just works better. And frankly, she seemed to be having more fun than she had in the original. There still isn't much of a plot, if I'm honest, but by giving the audience characters that are easy to like and easier to relate to, and who, as an audience, we start to feel some investment in, The Suicide Squad kind of styles that out. It's not high art, but that's not what it's trying to be. It captures beautifully the spirit of the comic, or at least the current iteration of the comic, which I really liked. And it's just a good, dumb, fun movie of a type Marvel does really well, and that, until recently, DC really hasn't. So I'm kind of hoping that this might actually be the shape of things to come. That'd be great. I actually think this was quite a bold move by DC, if I'm honest, because Suicide Squad is universally panned. So, first of all, to do a sequel, bold, but also to not reboot it entirely, to sort of make a film that's kind of a bit of a sequel, but also a bit of a reboot. That's more imaginative thinking than we've seen from DC films in recent times. So, yeah, I, it's making me kind of optimistic for the films that are going to come out in 2022. 
Uh, and we'll talk about the Batman next week. But for now, I'm going to segue into TV. Because my goodness, we were treated well by Geek TV this year. I've already talked about Series 13 of Doctor Who. And I'm not going to go into it again. Suffice to say, I loved it. And as I said, when I reviewed Season 13 of Doctor Who, I hope to have Hat and or Alice on the show to talk about Season 13 once we've seen the New Year special, which clearly, at time of recording, none of us have, because it isn't New Year's Eve yet. I think most of the real treats, for me at least, came on Disney+. Plus. Um, so if you don't have Disney+, Plus, I'm about to annoy you by telling you about all the things you've missed. First of all, WandaVision. Where even do you start? Well, actually, you start by sounding the spoiler horn because the reviews of some of the Disney Plus stuff is not going to be spoiler free. Sorry. You might want to skip ahead the next five or six minutes if you haven't seen WandaVision, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, What If, or Hawkeye, because I'm going to talk about all of them. We'll keep spoilers to a minimum, but there are going to be some. So... Spoilers! WandaVision. What a way to start a year. Dropping in January 2021, uh, WandaVision completely, completely blew my mind. We started with a series of episodes that were based on sitcoms from different decades. We started with the kind of 50s I Love Lucy style sitcom, ending with a kind of 80s, 90s style thing. And I know that that put a few people off at the start. It did seem very strange. It was very hard to work out what was going on. And that was a bold, bold way to start the Marvel Cinematic Universe on television. But it completely worked. And as we started to get views about the real world, the whole bittersweet horror of it started to be revealed. And it is ultimately a tragedy. It's a story about grief and the lengths that grief will push you to. It's also a story about sacrifice and the sacrifices that we have to make. And it's a story about letting go, something that Wanda eventually is able to do. Honestly, I found it incredibly moving as reality starts to push in on the world that Wanda's used her magic to create. And she knows she's going to lose everything. She knows that her perfect home is an illusion and it's going to disappear. She knows her children aren't real and they are going to disappear. She knows her husband, the vision, isn't real and he is going to disappear. And the build-up to that climax is so heartbreaking and so beautifully handled. Then when it's all gone, Wanda's utter, utter grief is so clear. But it does set up a way for poor Bethany to come back as the Vision, which is interesting. And I'm wondering what they're going to do with that. If anything, they may not do anything with it at all, but they could. It also sets up Monica Rambeau, who we see start to demonstrate some superpowers in this. And I'm wondering where she's going to go with that in the MCU. Obviously, in the comics, she has powers, was Captain Marvel for a bit, uh, has also gone under the name as, names of Pulsar, and I think currently is known as Spectrum. So clearly they're going to do something with that character. They put far too much time and energy introducing her to not do anything with her in the future. I also hope we're going to see more of the characters of Jimmy Woo and uh, Darcy Lewis. They made such a great double act. Love to see them together again in kind of like an MCU version of the X-Files, where they go around just investigating strange stuff, which there's a lot of in the Marvel Universe, and there's definitely got legs, that idea. Marvel, if you're listening, which you're not, but if you are, you can have that idea for free if you haven't had it already. We already know we're going to see Catherine Hahn as Agatha Harkness again in uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. But the whole show was just an ideas factory almost. For me, easily the best of the Marvel Disney Plus shows so far. And honestly, as you're about to hear, that is high praise indeed from me. 
WandaVision was very definitely a hard act to follow, and I know quite a few people felt that the Falcon and the Winter Soldier kind of dropped the ball a little bit. I actually think that's harsh. What we had with the Falcon and Winter Soldier was much more conventional, but still quite a powerful piece of television, I thought. It drew from some particularly challenging source material, and, you know, the showrunners had to make a call when they decided to do this show. If you're going to put Captain America's shield on the arm of an African-American man in 2021, you can either address race or you can ignore race. If you address it, you're going to be criticised for being political. If you don't address it, you're going to be criticised for not addressing the elephant in the room. Because after the year that we had in 2020, and let's be honest, the couple of hundred years of American history prior to that, race is an issue. A lot of African-Americans have complicated feelings about their country and the symbols that represent it. Speaking personally, I would have been disappointed if the issue of race had been ignored in the show, and I'm very glad that it wasn't. But of course, having decided that, yeah, OK, we are going to address the issue of race in this show, you do still have to do it well. And by and large, I think they did. Now, I'm saying this as a white guy and a non-American. So I'm outside that culture. My opinion is therefore not that valid on this subject. But, you know, it seemed to work for me. I liked seeing Sam wrestle with the idea of carrying that shield. I liked his unwillingness to do so, his reluctance to pick it up. I liked his reasons for taking it on in the end. It all made sense to me. What we had was a character making decisions based on his experience and his life. And it was good to see. You may or may not agree with the decision that he made. But in the world of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that was Sam Wilson's decision to make. And he made it. We now get to see what the consequences of that decision are in the next Captain America movie which I am looking forward to because I really like Anthony Mackie as Sam Wilson and I really like Sam Wilson as Captain America. Big fan of, of it in the comics, big fan of it in the movies, it turns out. I think having the US agent as one of the main villains worked perfectly and a good performance, actually. Although I think he did look a bit weird in the suit. I think where the show had a problem was with its main villain, Erin Kellerman as Carly Morgenthau, the leaguer of the Flag Smashers, was a stunning performance. Um, the showrunner called her the glue for the series, and I think that is right. I think she was. But the Flag Smashers were odd, because quite a lot of what they were saying kind of made sense. It's the same problem that they had with Killmonger in Black Panther. You know he's the bad guy. But you also find yourself nodding along in agreement, which is an interesting place to put your audience. Also, if you're going to have a character who you're going to say could be anyone, you know, you'll never know they're there. They just melt into the crowd. And then you cast Kellerman, who is pretty visually distinctive. That does require you to suspend your disbelief a little bit higher than perhaps you might want to. And actually... This is not a criticism of the casting of Kellerman, because she was amazing. It's more a, a criticism of the writing. Once Kellerman had been cast, they could have leaned into that and made made a thing of it. But anyway, I really, really liked it. I liked the relationship that Sam has with his sister. I liked the amount of effort he put in to mastering using the shield. And I liked the honesty of the show. It felt genuine. It felt real. Sam's life outside of being a superhero felt like a life that a lot of veterans would be living. You then throw in the relationship with Sebastian Stan as Bucky Barnes and you get just another layer. You can call it a buddy story. You can call it a bromance. Or you can go full bore and call it a romance if you like. 
for me, it was a story about the kind of awkward friendship you have with somebody who you're only connected to by one other friend and that friend is no longer there. You kind of know each other. You have that thing in common, but you don't know a lot about each other. And you have to kind of make the decision. Am I going to make the effort to be friends with this guy? Or now we no longer have that friend in common. Are we just going to drift apart? That's the thing that happens in real life. And I enjoyed that aspect of the story. I really did. Then we got What If? The animation style was not universally popular with everybody. Personally, I like it. And I think I've always loved the What If concept. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's something that the comics have done for a long time. Just single one-off stories that are basically like those conversations you have in the pub. You know, like, what if, though? What if that radioactive spider bit Frank Castle and so the Punisher got spider powers? Or what if, right? What if Steve Rogers hadn't taken the super serum and Peggy Carter had instead? And that is actually one of the questions that this series answered. And the answer is we got Captain Carter. And not only was that a really great episode, of what proved to be a really great show. I'm not going to go into every episode in detail. It would take too long. But we're also going to get now a Captain Carter comic, which makes me really happy because I love the character of Peggy Carter. And that's the beauty of What If. You can play around with characters and concepts and ideas, and it doesn't impact on anything. And if it turns out not to have been a good idea, you can just leave it because it was only a What If. But if it turns out to be a good idea, you can run with it. And then, finally, we get... Hawkeye, which again, I'm not going to talk about too much because I've spoken about Hawkeye already on the show and I don't want to repeat myself. But last time I spoke about it, we hadn't seen the final episodes. Now we have. Boy, did they stick that landing. I've sounded the spoiler horn, so I can now say Vincent D'Onofrio is brilliant as the Kingpin. Just brilliant. And I will be honest. Did not see it coming. The reveal at the end of episode five was just blew me away. Blew me away. He is a slightly different kingpin to the character in the Daredevil show on Netflix. Wilson Fisk in Daredevil would never have worn that shirt for a start. But apart from that, actually, he kept hold of the quiet, simmering rage that comes through for the kingpin. And his clear possessiveness for the city of New York also retained. Brilliant. Just brilliant. Would be the standout performance of the show were it not for the existence of Echo. Just a stunning performance by Alacqua Cox, setting the character up for her own movie, I believe. And just just owned every scene she was in. Amazing, amazing performance. In a show full of them, Hayley Stanfield as Kate Bishop... Florence Pugh as Yelena. There were no bad performances in this show at all. Everything hung together. The final episode, such a good finale. Everybody got the ending they deserved. Everyone got the ending they needed. It was so good to have the year bookended by such good shows. Starting in January with WandaVision, ending in December with Hawkeye. So much good stuff from Disney Plus in between. This is not a paid advert for Disney Plus, although Disney Plus, if you're listening. But I've got to say this. As somebody who stood against getting streaming services for a long, long time, I can honestly say if you're into your geeky TV and you don't have Disney Plus, you're kind of missing out. I'm almost at the point, actually, of saying if you're only going to have one streaming service, Disney Plus might be the one just for the sheer volume of quality content, particularly now. I mean, Disney owns practically everything. So there's so much great stuff all in one place. And that's why I've dedicated this week's entire TV segment to Disney+. Plus. Such a solid performer all the way through the year. We're going to talk next week about some of the non-Disney stuff. But for now, we're going to move on because... We haven't even started to talk about comics yet. And I know I said it quite a lot throughout the year, but 2021 was an amazing year for comics. I'm going to be giving you my comic of 2021 next week. 
And I really do have to say, it was a really tough choice to pick out one title from the brilliance of everything we've had this year. But, you know, a choice has to be made. I've made it. There are some honourable mentions, and these are not in any particular order, okay? Uh, They're literally in the order of the pile they're on, on my desk as I'm recording. And collections of all of these are either out already or will be out soon. So if you've missed them in singles, you can pick them up in collected form and enjoy them. And we're going to start with House of Slaughter. This is a spin-off from the rather literally titled Something is Killing the Children series, in which Monica Slaughter kills monsters, which kill children. And throughout that series, we learned gradually that Monica Slaughter was from an organisation, a family called the House of Slaughter, and their mission was to kill monsters. This book tells the story of Aaron Slaughter, who is Erica Slaughter's, I guess, handler. You, you might say not quite her boss, but the person who tells her what to do. And he's had his own adventures, and this book tells of those. It's a much more personal story, I think. Uh, it's by the same creative team. Links to who they are in the show notes. I, I'm not going to list out loads of names here. There isn't time. It's an intriguing story. And uh, we're, what, three issues in at the moment, and I am absolutely loving it. It's dark. It's creepy. It's a brilliant horror novel told using sequential art and it's just brilliant another highlight this year uh, again in the kind of horror vein in the kind of stephen king vein is the me you love in the dark there we have a painter who is struggling with creativity got a bit of a block and she moves to a midwest town to get away from the big city and the distractions so she can concentrate on her art But when she moves in to the big old house she's rented, she discovers that she's not the only occupant. Also there, there is a presence. A presence that she gets to know and develop a relationship with in every sense of that word. Now, the story isn't finished yet, but it has taken kind of a dark, almost misery-like turn. And again, it's brilliant brilliant storytelling links in the show notes to the creative team it's a gloriously claustrophobic story about love and obsession Uh, the kind of storytelling that generates a real atmosphere around you as a reader and I, i certainly found i was completely engaged it's one of those comics that found its way to the top of my to read pile every single time it came out absolutely my kind of horror so i suppose that's not so much of a surprise. What was a surprise to me was a comic I absolutely did not expect to like. I am not a dog person, okay? Quite like cats, dogs wind me up. Sorry, I know that's a problem for many of you, but they do. Don't like dogs. There you go, said it. So a comic entirely about and told from the point of view of dogs, you would not expect me to really, really run with. And honestly, I didn't expect to either. But my goodness, it was brilliant. Quite a cartoony look, but it was a book that was actually quite dark. Basically, it's a story about a serial killer told from the point of view of the dogs of the people he's killed. Because what this killer did when he killed somebody who had a dog was he would take the dog and keep it. So this serial killer lived in a house full of dogs. And it worked on the idea that dogs don't have good memories. And if they don't see somebody for a long time, apparently they start to forget them. Now, I didn't know that. I don't even know if it's true, but that was the premise for the book. And so you have a dog who's just arrived because her lady has been killed. And she can just about remember her lady, but she can't remember all the details. And then she finds a scarf that her lady was wearing when she was killed. And that brings back some memories. And she tries to talk to some of the other dogs about it, but they can't remember their people. Except sometimes they get snatches and slowly. All the dogs turn against this killer. And there's a, an absolutely brilliant climax in which everything gets sorted out and the guy gets caught. Spoilers. I, I'm not telling you anything, actually, that will spoil your enjoyment of the book, I don't think. And then a final conclusion that, again, plays on the idea of a dog's imperfect memory. And I just loved it. 
absolutely loved it. It was a story about love and persistence. And I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. And I think finally for this week, I have to mention Nightwing, which has been astounding this year. I honestly, honestly don't know how they've done it, but it keeps getting better. All the way through 2021, Nightwing has been my favourite superhero book by some distance, and every issue seems to be better than the last. The latest issue, for goodness sake, has been drawn as one continuous image. They haven't released it as a poster. I really wish they would, because it's just literally the whole thing was painted in one go as a single continuous long, long, long strip. And the artist Bruno Redondo has been doing that kind of thing since the very start. He's like an innovation machine. And even where the things he's doing have been done before, he's doing them pretty much better than I've seen them done before. Add to that the writing of Tom Taylor, where he's keeping the book serious, but also light. Dick Grayson is tackling a huge amount of stuff, but he's still the big brother of the other Robins. He's still the kid who has that on-again, off-again relationship with Barbara Gordon as Batgirl. And those relationships are so beautifully drawn and represented here. It's just a sublime thing of beauty at the moment, Nightwing. I don't think I've ever seen a superhero book done better. And that's a big thing for me to say. I've read a lot of superheroes in my time. This, this is just pitch perfect. And yet, none of those comics are my comic of the year. To find out what was, you're going to have to come back next week. Because we are almost out of time. This is the last show of 2021. So... I would just like to take a second to thank everybody who's listened, either on Harrogate Community Radio or on the podcast. I'm sorry there's been so much of me just ranting into the void and not nearly as many guests as I would have liked. The truth is, my original show, The Geeks at the Gates, morphed into Geeking with Destination Venus because it was getting so difficult to schedule. It's not that people don't want to come on. It's that I haven't had time to do things when other people have had time to do things. And uh, that's really chucked a wrench in the works. I'm hoping in 2022 we will get that ironed out a little bit. But life has a habit of getting in the way, so we'll see. But if you've been listening to us all year, thank you for investing that amount of your valuable time in my inane drivel. I really do appreciate it, and I appreciate you. We will be back next week with more of the highlights of what has been a bizarre year in so many ways. And you'll get to find out what my comic of the year was. So, yay, that'll be exciting, won't it? All that remains for now is for me to tell you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a copyright feature from Venus Rising Media and is engineered in Yorkshire by me. And honestly, I hope to have time to put a little bit more effort into the engineering of this in the new year so that the sound quality can be a little bit slicker. I don't claim to be a great sound engineer, but I'm a good enough sound engineer to know that I could be doing a better job than the one I'm actually doing. It's not because I don't care. It's because I haven't got, haven't had time. Hopefully that's going to change. So I hope you have an absolutely spectacular new year. Whatever you're doing, please try and do it as safely as you can. But please do have as good a time as you feel comfortable having with as many people as you feel comfortable being around. We'll see you on the other side of the bells. Have an excellent, excellent, wonderful, happy, joyous new year. We will see you in the, the first Thursday of 2022. But until then, aside from having a happy new year, which I believe I've already wished you, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Stay safe and stay geeky. Until the next time, we gather round our various devices to nerd out and go geeking. You all take care now. Happy New Year. <laughs>